our topic today is medical prioritization, phase vaccine distribution, and triage from the perspective of Jewish law. Most of us are no doubt familiar with the CDCs and the state and local mind-boggling, uh, complicated lists of phases and tiers, the chaos and the try, trying to get things organized with hundreds, thousands of systems all over the country. But the, 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 the key question, of course, is the rules. What should the rules be? Who should have priorities with, uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine? Who should be, insofar as we don't have an unlimited supply of vaccines? And, uh, so who should get them first? The CDC has issued its opinions. Other countries have made their own decisions. So we're going to discuss today the general topic of medical prioritization and triage in Jewish law. And we'll discuss how that applies to the phase, vac- phase vaccine distribution, to the, how, how we distribute a limited number of COVID-19 vaccines. So the Talmudic discussion of medical prioritization, what do we do if we can't save everyone? Who do we decide to save? Who do we save first? Who has priority? Is a Talmudic discussion, a Mishnah, and a discussion in the Talmud, in Maseches Harayas, the, the Mishnah and the Gemara are not exactly clear what we're saving people from, whether it's drowning, shipwreck, disease, something else. The Talmud actually discusses with certain, certain variations on this theme, if, we, if we're saving people from indignity, from abuse. In certain cases, women have priority because they're, they're more likely to be abused or more likely to suffer uh, different, types of, uh, different types of disgrace. But our focus today is on saving life, saving limbs, saving health, where men and women experience the loss of life and loss of health more or less equally. So what does the Talmud have to tell us about priorities? Do we say all lives are equal? Do we say first come, first serve? What do we do? So the Talmud gives us a, Talmud gives us a whole list of priorities. A man precedes a woman. Torah scholar precedes even a king. Certainly anyone else, but even a king. King precedes a high priest. A priest, a Kohen, precedes a Levi. Levi precedes an ordinary Israelite. Once again, Talmud Chacham, Torah scholar, even if he's a Mamzer, Mamzer in the technical sense, uh, born out of certain prohibited unions, not Mamzer in the colloquial sense, but even if he's a Mamzer in the halachic sense, the legal sense, he has precedence over everyone. And the... The Mishnah and the Talmud explain what is so special, what is unique about a Talmud Chacham. So the Mishnah said, the, the Gemara says that a king, a king, is, re- a king is replaceable. All of Israel is, is uh, fit for royalty. At the end of the day, anyone can be the king. A Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, Torah is not replaceable. We have no one like him. It might depend on what level of Torah scholar we're talking about. But the Torah, Torah wisdom is the most important. So a Torah scholar precedes everyone. So this rather brief discussion in the Talmud uh, perhaps raises more questions than it answers. The Mishnah gives different examples, pairwise questions of who goes before whom, what the priorities are. It gives us a little bit of insight as to why. The Mishnah does not give us general rules, but the way the later commentaries have interpreted this discussion they, they've categorized the various types of precedences into a number of categories. There are ones that are based on strict genealogy, 
Someone who's a Kohen, someone whose father was a Kohen. Who's a Levi, someone whose father was a Levi. Some of them are based on rigid genealogical aspects of people. Some are based on merit. Merit, or alternatively, value to the public. What we would call today essential workers. Why is the Talmud Chachem so important? So, because we have nobody else. There's nobody else who can, there's nobody else who is, uh, Torah is, Torah is essential. Torah wisdom, Torah scholarship is uh, uniquely important. So that's essentially, a, a, that seems to be an assertion of the notion of essential workers. There are people whose value to society is so important. Anyone can replace the king. He's the king today. Someone else will be the king tomorrow. A Torah scholar is unique. His loss, he's irreplaceable. And therefore he goes first. That indicates that value to society is one of the criteria that we use when deciding, when deciding whom to save. And men, men go before women. That obviously is a uh, provocative and, uh, and difficult one to understand. In, in the English tradition, so we know that the Titanic and goes back to Victorian England, we say women and children first. Not enough lifeboats, women and children first. Scholars have actually done studies as to whether this was actually practiced systematically in England and the world in general. The answer apparently is no. The answer apparently is that in most shipwrecks, it was each man for himself. Men typically survived at much higher rates than women did. Not entirely clear if that was because they were stronger, so they pushed the women out of the lifeboats and took it for themselves, or because they were better swimmers, or because Victorian gowns didn't make for good bathing suits. It's hard to know exactly why men survived, but scholars seem to think that this, this uh, women and children first was a nice idea. And it was true in the Titanic, one or two other ships, but it wasn't generally true. In any event, women and children first is not a legal doctrine. It was a custom in England, and it's not clear an ideal in England, not clear how widely it was followed. Today, certainly, when we deal with medical prioritization in the Western world, women do not generally get preference. Assuming that medically their, their situation is equivalent to men, we have vaccines. We, we have a lot of criteria that authorities are using to decide who gets vaccines. I don't think anyone says you know, women get them first because women are somehow special. Or uh, Today, we're very egalitarian. Today, we believe that uh, we use objective criteria, and gender, gender is not typically one of them unless it's medically significant. But the Mishnah says just the opposite. The Mishnah says, men go first. So these are the rules that the Mishnah and the Talmud give us. Some of them are genealogical, some of them are gender, some of them are based on a person's place in society. Not, not, not necessarily hereditary positions, Talmud Chacham, the monarchy is hereditary, but the, the idea seems to be value to society. The Mishnah gives us a bunch of Mishnah, the Gemara, give us a bunch of these types of well-defined objective criteria for, for determining who has precedence. Notably absent from the Mishnah and the entire Talmudic discussion is any reference to the types of criteria we would use today. Who's, who's in more danger? Who's more likely to die? Who are, we, who are we more likely to save? For whatever reason, we'll discuss soon what later authorities have said about this, but for whatever reason... This is completely absent from the Talmud, from the Mishnah of the Talmud. The Mishnah of the Talmud just give us a list, a hierarchy of objective, concrete criteria, independent of the danger, having to do with a person's, a person's personal characteristics, a person's place in society, a person's place in, in, in the Jewish people. And those are the criteria that we use for determining who should be saved first. If we can only save one, who do we save? Now... 
there was never that much discussion about this in Shulchan Aruch, in Poskim. This, was, this is a Mishnah, it's a Gemara. It, was, it, it never, it doesn't seem to have, it, it, there isn't much discussion about this in the halachic literature, in Jewish law. It was never contested, but it, it, these, these were the rules on the books, going back to the Talmud. There wasn't much discussion about this in later halachic sources, unclear why. In the 20th century, a number of major Jewish law authorities in the United States, in Israel, elsewhere, have written a variety of, a variety of uh, articles, responsa, and so on, discussing the rules of prioritization. And one question they discuss is, what do we do with this Mishnah and Gemara? Do we actually follow this? Do we actually, will we actually save a Kohen before a Levi? Will we actually save a man before a woman? Do we actually do this? So, poskim are all over the place on this. There are some poskim who take for granted that we do. How could you not? It's a Mishnah. It's a Gemara. No one can, no one can test it. How, how could you possibly disregard Jewish law as sourced in the Talmud if this is what the Talmud says? This is what we should do. Of course, this is what we do. So, a, a number of distinguished Jewish law authorities have taken that position. Rav Asher Weiss, a leading contemporary uh, authority who's written extensively on COVID, he takes for granted that we do apply the rules of this mission. He wasn't discussing the COVID vaccine in this context, but in various discussions of the rules of precedence, he takes for granted that, of course, we follow, the, of course we follow these rules of the Mishnah and the Brisa and the Gemara. As we'll see, he has other criteria, some of which have to be evaluated first, before the Mishnah kicks in, but certainly, the, all else being equal, we would follow the, the hierarchy of Maseches Harayas. Others, others are not so sure. Some of the leading halachists of the 20th century expressed uh, uncertainty and reluctance to apply these rules, although it's not always clear why they were reluctant. From Moshe Feinstein in the United States, from Shlomo Zalman Orbach in Israel, both have cryptic comments in their published responsa saying it's difficult to apply these rules, it requires uh, careful analysis whether to apply these rules, they both express a cert- certain reservations about applying these rules, although they are, their comments are very brief and they do not explain why it should be so hard. These rules seem actually pretty easy. They're, they're pretty well-defined, cut-and-dried, concrete rules to, uh, that are easy to apply. So it's, uh, you, you don't have to sit there and argue, are you a teacher? Are you this? Are you that? Are you essential? These are very simple, and most of them are very simple. You can argue what level of Torah scholarship is required to qualify, but most of these rules seem pretty straightforward. Nevertheless, Rav, uh, Rav Feinstein and Rav Orbach were both uh, uncertain. Rav Feinstein actually has several responses, and some of which he does seem to assume these rules are followed, and others he, seems to, he assumes that we don't. But they don't really explain why, why we shouldn't. Rabbi Avram Sofer Abraham, one of the leading halachic medical ethicists of our time, he says that he doesn't understand why we shouldn't. He says it seems that we should. That Again, it's, uh, in terms of the normal rules of the development of halacha, it seems that we should. He says he doesn't think we actually do, though. As a matter of fact, he says he doesn't think doctors, even observant ones, even ones who normally would follow Jewish law, he doesn't think they actually follow such a policy. He thinks that they follow the rule of first come, first served, and he's perplexed, he struggles with trying to understand how could we simply, how could we simply ignore a, uh, how could we simply ignore a flat-out halacha. I've seen, I saw just this morning, someone showed me that, that someone told me that Rabbi Yosef Shalom Yashuv, another leading halachist of the latter half of the 20th century, has said that we don't follow these rules because it would lead to Chil Hashem, it would lead to, uh, 
It would lead to uh, non-Jews, not, those who are not observant Jews, it would lead to them being critical of the Torah and being critical of Jewish religion to impose these rules. It would lead to Eva, it would lead to animosity, and uh, it would, uh, that, that these rules would not be appreciated by the non-Jews, and that itself is a reason why, why we don't follow them. I, I haven't seen a, uh, an authoritative citation of this. In any event, it's one thing to say that, uh, well, that, that, that where we can, we, we, we accommodate the sensibilities of those who don't follow the Torah, but here, if, if we talk about life and death, if a person has the right to be first, according to the Torah, if the Torah says a Kohen has the right to be saved before Israel, and we're going to say we don't want to offend our, our non-Jewish uh, colleagues, so we're going to let him die and save the, the other one instead, that's a, pretty, uh, that's a pretty striking thing to say. In any event, the, we do have a number of leading, leading authorities who, who argue that these rules are somehow not followed, are unclear why, and there are, other, there are others, though, there are other distinguished halachists who assume that we do follow these rules, and that these rules, that an observant doctor who has a choice, who has, uh, who has, who has flexibility, a hospital controlled by observant Jews, is expected to follow these rules, and all, certainly at least, in the very, at least all else being equal, we are expected to follow the guidelines set, forward, set forth in the Mishnah, the of the Gemara, Kohen before Levi, Levi before Yisrael, man before woman, Tamil Chacham before everyone, king before Kohen Gadol, Kohen Gadol before ordinary people, and so on, and so on, and so forth. One, uh, one question, one other point, which is not mentioned in the Mishnah, which is the subject, again, of some controversy. Rav Yaakov Emden, Rav Yaakov Emden, a great authority of several hundred years ago, he has a, an analysis of this whole topic in, in his Sefer Migdalos, and he says that in additional, he, he lists all these various uh, criteria that emerge from the Talmud. Additionally, he says, we, we, we certainly don't have a woman and children first policy. Women first does not have a place in halacha. At least, in certain cases it does, but not in the general case of saving, uh, saving lives. However, he says, we do have a policy of young before old. He says, a young man before an old man, a young, an old man before someone who is uh, terminally ill, and so on. And he, and he says that we do have the policy that, that, that we save young people before old ones. Now, he does not say children before, before adults. A, a young, strapping fellow of 22, Rabbi Yaakov Emden seems to be saying we would save before uh, an older person of 65 or 75. So the, the notion of women and children first, now again, I'm not sure what it's based on, whether it's based on a chivalrous notion that because they're somehow weaker, they're, they're deserving of more protection, whether it's because they're more innocent, women were believed to be more pure, and children are uh, seen to be innocent and pure, whether it was simply because society needs them more, women are essential for the, for the reproduction of the species, and children are the future of society. I'm not sure what the English were thinking when they had this notion of women and children first. In any event, Rav Yaakov Emden seems to be assuming a somewhat utilitarian approach here. He seems to be assuming that we save young before old the same way we save old before before terminally ill, and so on, because they have more life, they have more potential, that saving their life is, is an act of greater utility. Again, he doesn't say very much, it, uh, I don't want to read too much into what he says, but he seems to assume that we look at the question of getting the most bang for our buck, to use uh, a somewhat uh, crude expression, that we, we have to look at, if we save a life, how much do we accomplish by saving this life? All else being equal, at least, he says, saving a young person accomplishes much more, accomplishes more than saving an old person. So he seems to assume that we would, that's why we would save a young person. 
This point is rejected by, they don't cite him, but this point is, is not accepted by a number of the, again, by the leading 20th century halachic authorities. Ramosha Feinstein, or Vasher Weiss, have said that it does not work like that, Halacha does not play God like that, that people have, a, people have a right to life, there's a duty to save lives, we don't sit there and make actuarial calculations about how much life each person has, God makes these decisions, they're not up to us, and they assume that, putting aside the question of terminally ill and so on, assuming two people are both, uh, are both expected to live, to live arbitrarily long lives, even though actuarially one of them is 20 years old, or 30 years old, or 40 years old, and therefore, it is certainly likely, statistically, that he will live less than the other one. That is not a consideration, and both Rav Moshe and Rav Weiss, and Rav Weiss or Usher Weiss, strongly reject the notion that we consider such things in a discussion of, of prioritization. The truth is, though, that although, although Rav Weiss and, uh, and Rav Feinstein both reject the, both reject the, the general idea that we that that, that that we make decisions about uh, that we make decisions about who's uh, who's going to live longer, who's not going to live longer. Rav Asher Weiss does 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 concede a little bit, does does open the door to this type of calculation a little bit. He's not sure. He's he, he's unsure of whether a young person would have precedence over a very elderly one who is very likely near his death. So again, I don't know where you draw the line exactly. When once we concede that the once we concede that we are allowed to make some type of actuarial calculation that a person who's 106 is more likely to die, is, has less life ahead of him than someone who's in a healthy person of 22. So Rav Asher Weiss, in principle, seems to be granting that we have the right to make this decision, possibly at least, although in general, we do not say someone's 22, someone's 30, someone's 40. That's something that, uh, that we generally don't do. Even Rav Yaakov Amdin doesn't say that we, that we go... Uh, entirely following actuarial tables. If you have someone who's 20 and 30, I don't know if Rabbi Yaakov Emden would say that the 20, I don't know if he would say, look at life insurance prices, and anyone who has a higher price for his uh, life insurance means that he's less worthy of being saved. Rabbi Yaakov Emden's language is a bocher, a young man, has precedence over a zuck. And again, bocher does not mean a child. Bocher generally would mean a teenager, a young man. So he says bocher goes ahead of zakin, a young man goes ahead of an old man, but he doesn't, uh, so, so again, everyone pretty much agrees that you're not going to give precedence to a 25-year-old ahead of a 30-year-old. Rav Asher thinks maybe you would give precedence to a 22-year-old against, uh, in, ahead of someone who's 106. Ramosha Feinstein says that we don't take into account age at all. And even Rav Asher says, in general, we don't take into account age, although he's not sure whether we would do so if someone is really, really old. All right. So this is the this is the mission of the Talmud. The mission of the Talmud gives these very concrete, very very objective criteria. Age is not mentioned in the Talmud, although uh, age is generally most poskim do not consider age to be a significant criterion. Although again, Rakiv Amdin does, although he seems to be something of an outlier, even though he is a much earlier authority than the later ones who reject the notion of taking age into account. So as I said, there there, there has not really been a great deal of a great deal of uh, serious practical discussion of this topic until the 20th century. One important early source that does, that, that, is, that is cited, that is an important source, is a comment of the Prima Gaudim, a major halachic work of, of about three centuries ago. The Prima Gaudim, again, he, he was writing this more in a theoretical way, he wasn't coming to Paskin, he wasn't coming to rule on an actual question, but the 
The Prima Gaudium says that he has a new criterion. He doesn't mention, he, 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 ignores the, he ignores the Talmudic discussion, he doesn't comment on it, but he says that someone who is in certain danger takes precedence over someone who is merely in possible danger. This is an entirely new criterion for triage. That w- this is something that will be much more familiar, much more in line with modern Western notions of how we do triage. We take into account the level of danger, the level of... Uh, how, uh, how, how imminent, how, how likely is someone's uh, death if we don't treat him? Someone who's in certain danger takes precedence over someone who is merely in possible danger. Again, there's a whole spectrum of likelihoods. He doesn't get into a lot of detail. This is not a, this is not a thorough, thorough systematic ex- examination of our topic. He just has a couple of lines in which he says that someone in certain danger takes precedence over someone who is merely in possible danger. He also doesn't specify, as I said, he doesn't explain how his criterion is to be integrated with the Talmudic discussion. Does he think that it replaces the Talmudic discussion? We don't, we don't rule in according with the Talmud. Instead, we do this. Does he mean that this has to be evaluated first? That first we decide who's in certain danger. We triage based on level of danger. Only then, once you have people who are in the same level of danger, then we invoke the Talmudic criteria. Maybe after the Talmudic criteria, maybe first we save the Kohen, then the Levi, and if there are two Kohanim or two Levim, then we look at whose, uh, whose danger is greater. None of this is explained by the Prima Gaudim. He just tells you this is an important criterion, doesn't give any context, doesn't integrate it with the Talmud, and just says a whole new criterion. Uh, the new criterion is we look at, again, qualitatively certain versus possible danger. It doesn't discuss whether there are gradations and degrees of possible danger, but he just says someone who is in Certain danger takes precedence over someone who's merely in possible danger. Roshlom Azaman Orbach, in the 20th century, accepts this prima gaudim, and he, and he extends it. He says, in addition to the criterion of level of danger, certain danger versus possible danger, we also take into account the, chan- the relative chances of saving him. That even if people are in equal danger, but if intervention to save one of them has a 90% chance of success... And the, and the intervention to save the other has a 10% chance of success. They're both in equal danger, but the, but the likelihood of successful intervention is significantly different. Then we take that into account. We, we will intervene in the, in the case where we have a higher chance of success. The Ramosha Feinstein says, expresses a similar rule. He says that we look at... Uh, the, the, that we look at, even though we explained before, we don't look at ages, we don't look at actuarial likelihood of the, we don't look at actuarial likelihood of how much life a person has ahead of him, we do look at certain technical halachic, technical halachic uh, differences in what type of life a person can expect. In halacha, there is a classic distinction in the context of pikuach nefesh, of life-saving, between chaye olam and chaye shah, someone who, if we save him, we expect him to live indefinitely, arbitrarily long, a full life ahead of him. It might not be 100 years. If he's already 60, it's unlikely he'll live to be 160. So he probably won't live to be 100 years, 100 years more, but he'll live. We expect him to live. He has no major, no major health conditions, so he's expected to live arbitrarily long. While someone who is terminally ill, that's called chayesha, someone who has a terminal prognosis, he's not expected to live more than a limited amount of time, that's called chayesha. That, Ramosha says, we take into account as well. So in addition to, in addition, or instead of the, the, the level of danger and the chance of saving, we also look at how much life does a person have ahead of him. If, one per, if they both have chaye olam, 
then, again, then the intermediate-term prognosis, someone's going to die in two years, that, Ramosha says, we don't consider. That's not something that, that's playing God. We don't look at that. Once somebody can live beyond a year or so, he says, that's considered, uh, he has his life ahead of him, and those people are all equal. We don't look at uh, statistics at that point. But if one person is considered terminally ill, Ramosha defines that as, Ramosha defines it as a year. If with treatment, we expect him to survive a year, then he has precedence over someone who is not expected to survive a year. Rav Asher Weiss also, also accepts a, uh, this notion that someone who has a chance of chayolam, of indefinite life, has precedence over someone who, whose realistic chances are only for chayesha, only for short-term life. Rav Asher, characteristically for him, doesn't like the idea of establishing, uh, establishing fixed numbers, trying to, to quantify this. He says... It is a subjective and a subjective and uh, and qualitative judgment. He says we don't simply look at a number on a chart. We have to look at is this does this person we expect him to survive for the long term? He says we we have to. It's a judgment call. He says we we can't give you exact numbers for how long exactly how many months a person has to be predicted to live. But the the basic idea he says the same as Ramosha that someone who has Someone who has chayolam, uh, someone who we hope, we anticipate being able to save for chayolam for indefinite life, has has uh, has precedence over someone who we, we only expect to be able to save for chayisha. So Rav Asher says again three basic criteria. He says we look at the severity and imminence of the danger, like the Primagadim says, is it uh, is it a certain danger or only or only possible danger? Like Rav Shlomo Zalman says, he says we look at the likelihood of our being able to save them. What is the probability of successful intervention? Relative probabilities of successful intervention. And the third criteria, like Ramosha says, is whether we expect to be able to save them for, for long life, for indefinite life, as opposed to chayesha. These types of criteria are much more in line, I think, with the ones the modern medical establishment would use. Triage, triage, triage departments and hospitals, battlefield triage, policy in terms of the, the medical health profession, these are the types of criteria we would commonly use. We would evaluate the relative levels of danger. We would evaluate the relative, uh, relative likelihood of successful intervention. And we would evaluate the, the amount of life that a person has ahead of him. Although, again, the, the post are reluctant to go, uh, to, to go fully, to fully follow actuarial calculations, but at least with regard to to major qualitatively different halachic, categ- halachic categories like chai olam versus chai isha, like someone who is uh, expected to live indefinitely and someone who's, expe- who's terminal and expected to die in the near future. So these, these are criteria that, the, these are criteria that, that modern post-game adopt. Again, they are strikingly absent from the Talmudic discussion, from the earlier discussion, but, the, but, but, but a number of major 20th and 21st century postkim assume, take for granted that we use that we use these types of that we use these types of criteria in deciding who to treat first. Rav Asher Weiss explicitly says that these types of criteria are evaluated before we consider the Talmudic hierarchy. He's one of the authorities who says that the Talmud's rules remain as halacha; they are normative. However, he says we first evaluate what we can call the modern triage criteria, which have to do with the, which have to do with utilitarian considerations about the level of danger and maximizing, maximizing the benefit of our interventions. After that, assuming people are, 
equally ill, we have equal likelihood of saving them, assuming that they're equal in terms of the medical criteria, then Rav Weiss says, then we turn to the discussion in Harayos of uh, people's value to society and people's personal merit and people's genealogical significance and so on. So according to Rav Weiss, we first, we first apply these various medical criteria, then we turn to the discussion in Harayos, the hierarchy of Harayos, for, for resolving the, the competition between people with equal, level, with, with equal levels of, uh, with, who, are, who are, from a medical perspective, more or, less, more or less equal. What do you do if people are equal in terms of the Harayos hierarchy and they're equal medically? What do you do then? So here again, Postkin, Postkin proposed various methods for, for resolving that kind of, uh, that kind of deadlock. Ramosha Feinstein says that if the once you've gotten through the hierarchy in Harayos, you can't, you, you don't know. He says you're not sure what what people's uh, what people's demographics are, how they fit into that hierarchy. He says, and Ramosha has a number of other criteria. He says, in addition to all the ones we've been discussing, Ramosha says that the that first come first served. Ramosha says that even before we take into account the rules in Harayos. There is a rule of first come, first served. We mentioned earlier, Rabbi Abraham says, that's what doctors follow generally, he says. He's, instead of the discussion in Harayas, Ramosha says that is, a, that is a criterion that you evaluate first. If a doctor has, is called first to someone, he goes to him and doesn't say, let me just see who else might need my services in the rest of the day. However, once we get past that, then you follow whoever's closest, he says, to his home. Then he follows the hierarchy in Harayas. And if that's not applicable, he says... Then he says you, there should be a lottery. Fair is fair. A random, a random, uh, random means of selection is fair. He says. So if it, so if if the if the if the various other criteria don't result in a in a clear precedence, he says, then the doctor should choose by random means. The Chazanish takes a different view. The Chazanish says he also assumes that you follow the hierarchy in Harayas, but assuming that they're equal, he says then the person can choose to save whichever one he wants. The, the doctor can say, I can, I can do whatever I want. Ramosha says, flip a coin, draw lots. And the Chazanish says, that no. Chazanish says, I can, it's up to me. I can pick whichever one I want. That if there's nothing in, in halacha, if there's nothing ethically, halachically, in Jewish law that pushes me one way or another, it's my choice, dealer's choice. I, I can do whatever I want and save whichever one I choose. Rav Asher Weiss has a tshuva where he is very upset. He says there's a certain gon, a certain halachic expert, who he concedes is a uh, very distinguished, he doesn't want to name him, I guess, because he's very upset about, about his position, but Rav Asher Weiss quotes a, an anonymous gon, an anonymous contemporary authority, who says that a doctor may choose to offer his services to the highest bidder. The doctor can say, look, you both need my help, I only have time for one, I only have resources for one, who's making me a better offer? Whoever pays me more, that's who I will treat. Rav Asher is appalled. Rav Asher thinks this is a terrible, terrible idea. Now, what's the issue here? What is this based on? So there's a comment of, there's a comment of the, of the Imre Baruch, commentary on Shulchan Aruch, by the Rabbi Baruch to Frankel, where he, he, he says something very similar. He says, that the, he says that in, that in a case where a doctor has medicine and, 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 and two people need it and, and is only enough for one, he says the doctor can feel free 
to offer it to, to, to whomever, Rabbi Frankel to Umim, Rabbi Baruch Frankel to Umim, says that the doctor can feel free to offer it to, uh, to whoever, whoever's willing to pay him more. So that sounds a lot like what this going is saying, that, the, that, that, that in general this is the rule, that, that certainly all else being equal, at least in that case, the doctor can choose to treat whoever is going to uh, make, a high, make, make a better offer to him. So Rav Weiss has a number of, a number of ways of explaining, uh, making distinctions and saying that is not generally the rule. First, he wants to argue that Rabbi Frankel Tum's comments are limited to patients who are not in mortal danger. In such a case, he says, we do not apply any of these rules of precedent. Nobody's going to die. Everyone's going to be okay. It's just a question of who's going to be treated and be healthier and get back on their feet better. Their Rav Asher says, that's maybe where Rabbi Frankel Tumim said that, the, that, that since there are no rules of precedent, you can feel free to offer your services to whomever you want. In a case of in a case of patients who are facing, who are in mortal peril, who are, who are facing the possible loss of life, then he says we are governed by the hierarchy of the, of, of the Talmud and Harayos and all the, the medical criteria, he says. We have a well-established set of rules, he says, that, that, that govern who has precedence for life-saving intervention. Then he says it is out of the question for a doctor to accept compensation to treat one patient over another. Rav Weiss does not explain at all why he thinks that the rules of precedence shouldn't apply to uh, non-life-saving treatments, to ordinary treatments, to get better and up on their feet. If a Kohen goes before a Levi for his life to be saved, I don't know why he shouldn't go before a Levi to just get better so he can get back up and work and, and, and act as a Kohen. I don't know why Rav Usher thinks that these rules are limited to patients in mortal peril, but that's what he says. Therefore, he says, Rabbi Frankel to Umim's comments must be limited to patients who are not in mortal danger. What's actually wrong with the doctor taking payment, assuming the patients are actually equal, assuming that the patients are medically equivalent? From a, from a triage perspective, these two patients are equally in need, equally in uh, deserving of, of medical treatment. So what's wrong with uh, breaking the deadlock by taking money? Intuitively, it certainly feels wrong. We, we, we certainly, we're, we're a democratic country. We feel that the rich and the poor, when it comes to health care, in principle at least, should be treated equally. So intuitively, I think it would bother most of us to say that the rich can simply pay to get to the head of the line. But what's actually wrong? And if you read Rav Weiss's comments carefully, he struggles to, to articulate exactly what's wrong. He says that in the Torah we have a concept of bribery. Bribery will make it difficult for the doctor to exercise proper judgment. And the, the, the doctor has to decide who is genuinely more deserving and... By taking money, he's uh, rendering himself uh, unable to properly decide who should be treated. Rav Asher seems to be, Rav Asher seems to be assuming that the only real problem with pay-to-play is that the doctor has to make judgments, and, his, and, and, and true disinterested judiciousness will be impossible if he is accepting compensation from one of the parties, just as a judge is unable to rule, to rule objectively if he's being paid by one side. Therefore, it, 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 it clouds his judgment and it's inappropriate. That would apply if the doctor actually has to make triage judgments. If there's actually individual patients who have to be examined and their condition has to be established and he has to judge who's, uh, who's more worthy, okay, then, then he shouldn't be taking money. In a case like the, the COVID vaccines, where doctors are not evaluating, generally they're not evaluating individual, uh, individual candidates for, for vaccines one by one. In general, in general there are... In general, there are 
policymakers, there are institutions, governments, and so on, government agencies on the federal, state, and local levels who are making decisions in a broad way about what classes of people in society should, uh, should get vaccines. We have phases, we have tiers. And then, so if an individual doctor, if an individual pharmacist, if an individual nurse has two people come before him, they both fit into phase one, tier two, or whatever it is, it's not his job to make any further judgment in general. It's not his job. If someone meets the criteria, as far as I know, he's supposed to just give them the shot. So then in, in such a case, if the doctor says, look, to the end of the day, I have one dose of vaccine left. Both of you qualify under the guidelines. Who should I give it to? So there's no issue of judgment. So what's actually wrong if the doctor, if the doctor would choose to take compensation for giving it to one more than the other? Now, the, the, obvious, the obvious next argument is, it's not yours. You're, 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 you're unjustly enriching yourself with public resources. Rav Asher gets into that as well. Rav Asher has another distinction in his, in his tshuva, where, he's, where he distinguishes, in, in this discussion, he has another distinction between a private physician, who obviously, he says, can choose to sell his services to the highest bidder, like any, like any provider of any service, any employer, under a, any, any employee under a capitalist system, has the right to provide his service in exchange, to anyone he wants in exchange for any compensation he wants. However, he says, someone who works in a hospital, in, a, in an emergency department, he obviously is not allowed to start taking uh, kickbacks and, and private, uh, private compensation for doing his job and to prioritize. It's not, it's not, that, that, that obviously is unfair, he says. So according to that distinction, it would depend, he said. It would depend, I guess. In terms of vaccination, obviously most, most vaccinations are controlled by large organizations, governments, companies, and so on, and they decide who the vaccines are being given to, and obviously if you are a little cog in that big wheel, you have to follow their rules, and if you then try to enrich yourself by choosing who you want to give it to, that obviously is not acceptable. But again, if you're dealing with, uh, I don't know if there is such a situation today, but if you're dealing with a a private uh, hospital, a privately owned, or a doctor who has a private store of vaccines, and, and, and and he would say, look, I have some extra vaccines, Again, I'm not discussing what the law is. I'm not getting into the question of the obligation to follow the law. That's a whole separate question. I'm discussing what the halakhic rules would be in the absence of any, of any legislation. If, 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 a, if a doctor, if a pharmacist had a personally owned stock of medicine, of a vaccine, and he says, look, I, that I have extra vaccine, I have extra medicine, I'm going to sell it to the highest bidder. So once again, according to Rav Weiss, you'd be permitted to do that, just not if you're an employee of a larger organization who is profiteering off the, off, the organization's, off the organization's resources. Now, Rav Weiss makes the point, the, his original point was he distinguishes between, between cases where patients are in mortal peril. Then he says healthcare providers have to rigidly follow the various rules of precedence we've been discussing, and they certainly can't take money because that will cloud their judgment and make it impossible for them to properly evaluate and triage patients. As opposed to other cases where they're providing non-life-saving aid, that's what Rabbi Frankel Tum is discussing. Physicians who are providing aid, aid and medical treatment in cases where life, life is not in danger, then he says it is more legitimate for doctors to choose who they want to save and to even accept compensation for doing so. This would actually yield a very interesting question in the case of coronavirus. In the case of the, the COVID-19 vaccine, do we view the COVID-19 vaccine as life-saving, as a question of pikuach nefesh, as a vaccine that saves lives, or do we view it as general medical treatment? Now, obviously, there's no question 
that the, it, it, it's beyond any reasonable doubt that the, the vaccine in general, in the aggregate, is going to save lives. That's clear. The, the vaccine is a, uh, is a chesed of God. It's a chesed of Hashem to give us this vaccine, and it's going to save lives in the aggregate. So there's no question that the vaccine actually saved lives. The question is, does that mean that vaccination is actually considered a matter of pikuach nefesh? A matter of an act of saving lives, like driving it, like driving a, a woman in labor to the hospital on Shabbos. Are you allowed to vaccinate on Shabbos? Are you allowed to receive the COVID vaccine, to administer the COVID vaccine, to receive to receive the COVID vaccine on Shabbos? So this question has been the subject of some discussion by a number of poskim in Israel recently. Can you vaccinate on Shabbos? And as you might expect, in almost any uh, question in this type of area. Opinions vary, opinions vary widely. There are some Rabbanim who have said it's a simple question of pikuach nefesh, very simple equation. Coronavirus is a deadly virus. COVID-19 kills. Vaccine prevents coronavirus in a large, with a high probability. Co- coronavirus vaccines therefore save lives. Therefore, administering the vaccine is pikuach nefesh. Therefore, it may be done on Shabbos, even if it would involve a malacha daraisa, biblically prohibited work. Other posts can have said, no way. If you really consider it pikuach nefesh, if you really consider it saving lives, round the clock, 24-7, how can you stop for anything? How can you stop to sleep? Have people do it. Uh, just just uh, pull out all the stops. Do what you would do for, uh, for, a, for, for a person who comes into the ER. The fact that we're not doing that, various, various rabbis have argued, indicates that it's certainly good public policy. It certainly is expected statistically to save lives overall. But but, but it's not actually considered an act of pikuach nefesh that would allow for the desecration of the Shabbos. Rav Asher Weiss himself, incidentally, in a letter says that on the one hand, he does not consider it to be a question of pikuach nefesh that would allow violation of Shabbos. So if someone had to do actual malacha, actual prohibited work on Shabbos, he would not be allowed to do it, or even malacha drabanan, he says. However, Rav Weiss points out, vaccination itself does not involve any malacha at all, not derais or not drabanan. Injecting medicine, injecting something into a person does not involve any malacha whatsoever. There are certain issues of drawing blood if, if, you, hit, if you hit the wrong thing, but uh, that's not obsecretia, it's not certain. Ravasher argues that in general, vaccination is not asr. It, it doesn't involve any prohibited activity on Shabbos, so therefore it would be mutter on Shabbos. But for our purposes, the point is, for our purposes, their opinions vary rather widely on the question of whether vaccination is considered an act of pikuach nefesh or not. It's certainly a great mitzvah. It's certainly, uh, certainly it's in the spirit of pikuach nefesh. It's certainly something that, that God will reward those who do it for saving lives. But in terms of the formal halachic categories, there is debate as to whether it's considered, and it's considered actually saving lives to the extent that, it could violate, that you can violate Shabbos to do so. So one wonders, according, going back to our original discussion of Rav Weiss, one wonders, according to Rav Weiss, that when we deal with life-saving medical, medical treatment, we have to rigidly apply, apply the hierarchy, and it's out of, out of the question whatsoever to take money for it. However, when we deal with non-life-saving treatments, he says, then, then the, the, the hierarchy doesn't apply, and then the, the, there's more possibility, he says, of allowing someone to take money to choose to provide treatment to one patient over another. So one wonders, then, which category vaccination would fall into. On the one hand, Rav Weiss himself tells us vaccination, even though it saved lives, one of, the, one of the reasons, incidentally, Rav Weiss feels that vaccination is not an act of pikuach nefesh is because assuming that you behave responsibly, you wear masks and take appropriate precautions, then your risk of infection is low. 
Rav Weiss has been consistently for the last year has been one of the strongest and most uh, articulate and unequivocal advocates of behaving responsibly and of following the guidelines of the health authorities and the medical establishment. So he feels that people who behave responsibly, the risk to them is quite low, and therefore it's not actually pikuach nefesh. So one wonders if, if, according to that train of thought, would we say that since vaccination is not pikuach nefesh, it has the more relaxed standards and the hierarchy doesn't apply and the doctor can feel free to give it to whoever he wants. And then, again, assuming he's a private doctor and not working for a larger organization, or organization itself could decide that we're going we're gonna to set priorities, we're going to give our donors first because, because it's in our interest to do so. Contra of wise, maybe you could do so because it's not considered actually life-saving treatment. On the other hand, at the end of the day, the vaccine does save lives. Rev. Weiss will be the first to tell you that. The vaccine does save lives. In the aggregate, statistically, the vaccine will save lives. It'll provide herd immunity for those who are not behaving responsibly, hopefully, and so on. So maybe it is considered pikuach nefesh, and the hierarchy does apply, and you can't take money. So I don't know. I, I haven't seen a direct discussion on this, but, the, but the, this is the idea. Rav, Rav Usher quotes this one distinguished authority who he refuses to name, who does allow a physician, or presumably an institution, an organization, to, to charge for providing services, again, at least in the case where they're equally deserving, at least in the case where they're equally needy in terms of the medical criteria. Rav Asher himself is initially quite opposed to this, although he himself grants, based on the comments of Rav Frankel to him, he himself quotes that there are some cases, at least private doctors, with regard to non-life-saving treatment, where he does, he does accept that in some cases it would be legitimate for a physician, or presumably an institution, to charge to, to sell their services, to sell access to limited resources to the, the highest bidder. So, for, for, the, for the final few minutes of, of our talk, I want to focus a little bit on the notion of essential workers. One of, the, one of the key categories that the CDC has privileged in its, uh, vac- in its phase vaccine distribution is essential workers. Workers, either healthcare workers, different levels of essential workers, grocery store grocery store workers, and so on. So, I want to discuss in a little more detail, does Jewish law have a notion of essential workers, and how would we define essential workers? So first we should note, when we discuss certain categories of workers who are going to give precedence, there are potentially two reasons for doing so. At least two reasons for doing so. One reason, one reason is that it is in society's best interest, if healthcare workers are not, are not vaccinated, then, then, then they may become ill and there won't be enough doctors and nurses and other types of health practitioners to treat patients. If, if, if they aren't given priority, they'll be less incentivized to want to do their work in the first place. So one, one possible set of arguments is that it is in society's best interest to vaccinate those whose continued functioning in their capacity as an essential worker is beneficial for society. The other set of arguments would be an argument based on merit. They're more deserving. Healthcare workers have been on the front lines. They've been literally most nefesh to treat patients. They, they've helped people. They're simply deserving. They, 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 they've, they've worked. They've, they've worked in unpleasant conditions. They've worked in dangerous conditions. So that society should, uh, should function. So people should have what they need. So they're more deserving. Hakar Satov, we owe them gratitude. They, they, simply did thing, they simply did great mitzvahs in doing so. So that's another reason, perhaps, why we should consider them... Why, why we should give them priority in, uh, in vaccine allocation. A recent article by Rabbi Yar Hoffman strongly rejects the notion that essential workers should have any precedence. 
he argues for the absolutist position that the only legitimate consideration is saving lives, is who is in more danger of, of losing his life. I suppose if a healthcare worker was, was, was at high risk because of his uh, work, then, then, then certainly Rav Hoffman would agree. But in general, he says, just because someone is an essential worker, that's, that's a completely unacceptable consideration. He says the only, the, only, the only legitimate consideration should be maximizing the lives saved in, in, the, in the short term, in the, in the, in the narrow sense of, of whether a vaccinated individual would have died without it. He, he thinks we should only be looking at how vulnerable people are, their age, their comorbidities, and so on, their underlying, their pre-existing conditions. He argues that to do anything else is murder and madness, and that the only, from a Torah perspective, from a rational, ethical perspective, he argues, he argues vehemently for the position that the only legitimate criteria should be the, should be the idea that the, of how many lives can we save in terms of how many people would die we have to, if we're considering two different, two different policies of vaccine allocation, we have to simply calculate how many, how many lives are, likely, are we likely to save according to plan A, how many are we likely to save according to plan B, and that's it. No, no, further, no, further, no further considerations are legitimate. Who are we to value one life over another, to say that, that an essential worker's life is more valuable? So first of all, as we've seen earlier, that halacha does value, does value some lives more than others, not necessarily in exact accordance with the CDC, but halacha certainly does say that certain lives are more valuable than others. That's the, the entire discussion in Harayos. There are certain people whose lives are more worthy of saving, either because they're inherently more meritorious, those people, or because they're more valuable to society. So halacha clearly does, does value certain lives more than others. That's, that's clear from Harayos. Again, as we've discussed, it's not exactly clear whether the Harayos uh, criteria should be evaluated before we, we, we consider how uh, the medical criteria of how, how, of, 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 of how much danger various people are in afterwards in some kind of combination with those criteria. But the fact is that the Talmud, has, we have well-established criteria for valuing some lives over others. Even though there is a very famous statement in the Talmud that if... If your life is in danger, and the only way you can save your own life is by murdering someone else, by killing somebody else, you're not allowed to do so, even though you can violate Shabbos, you can, you can eat pork, you can do almost anything to save your life, you cannot kill somebody else. And the Talmud has a famous explanation for this. Who said your blood is better than his blood, that you should spill his blood to save your blood? Maybe his blood is better than your blood. You're not allowed to kill somebody else because who said you're more deserving of life than he is? It does not work like that. And that's true, certainly, even if you are, even if he's the Kohen Gadol, even, even if you're the Kohen Gadol, you're the king, you can't just say, he's a worthless person, he's a dead-ender, I'm the Kohen Gadol, Judaism needs me, Israel needs me, I'm going to kill him to save my life. Absolutely unacceptable. We never have the right to kill somebody else to save our own life, no matter how special and important we think we are, no matter how special and important we may actually be, based on objective criteria, it doesn't matter. We never have the right to assume that someone else's blood is better than ours. That's true. However, that is discussing a case where I'm going to actively take somebody's life. In a case where nobody's life is being actively taken, but we have a limited resource and we can only provide that resource to one of two people, then we have an entire Gemara, as we've been discussing. Then we have an entire Talmudic discussion of who the resource should be provided to. Then we most definitely do say that certain lives are worth, are worth saving more than others. Kohen is worth more than Israel. 
king is worth more than commoner, Talmud Chacham is worth more than everyone, Chaye Olam is worth more than Chaye Shah, according to Yaakov Emden, young is worth more than old, and it's not unreasonable to extend some of these categories to say that essential workers have precedence over, over, ordinary, over ordinary civilians. And there are, there are actually some contemporary, some contemporary rabbinic thinkers who have made this argument in the context of, uh, in the context of COVID-19 vaccination. I haven't found on this topic uh, responsa rulings from the, the leading halachists of our generation, but, but there are some notable figures who have, who have opined on the question. Back in Nisan, back uh, eight months ago or, or so, Rabbi Yigal Shafran, a prominent medical ethicist in the halachic medical ethicist in the Israeli chief rabbinate, he has said that, the, that, that his opinion is we should distribute vaccines. He says it's machlokas, he knows there are different opinions, but he says that he thinks that distribution must be according to a person's value to the public. What are his examples of who does he think is valuable to the public? Heads of government, army, departments of health and economy, electric workers, bakery workers, water systems employees. Some people might think that government officials are actually uh, not essential or actually less than essential and should be, uh, we do just as well without the government. But realistically, we know that we do need some kind of government. And therefore, many people fail the other parties. Government officials are not essential, but theirs are. In general, though, the, the point of Rabbi Shafran is clear, that people whose society, a healthy society, needs, whether it's utility workers, whether it's political leadership, military leadership, and those are people that we need. He goes on, Rabbi Shafran, and says something remarkable. He says, people who are important in maintaining the public spiritual and emotional strength are also considered essential. Rabbis, he says, but even entertainers, he says. Singers, pop singers, comedians, society needs them too. He says, those are also essential workers in some, in some sense. They also should have precedence. Society, in order to function, society needs even an entertainment industry. That's surely uh, a provocative position. One, one can debate whether a, a pop singer is really more somehow worthy or essential than uh, an ordinary uh, salt-of-the-earth person who goes about his job and supports his family, but that's what Rabbi Shafran suggested. Similarly, Rabbi Shlomo Dachowski is reported to have asserted, not about coronavirus, but about a hypothetical severe influenza pandemic. He also says that halacha does value, the tarot does value saving people who are essential workers. Healthcare workers are first, he says, because we need them to fight the epidemic. If they, if they succumb, they won't be available. He may have been talking about a case where, where the epidemic was really running rampant and felling people, not, not where it's somewhat under control like today, but he says, in, at least in some cases, he says... Healthcare workers would be considered essential workers and could be vaccinated first. Furthermore, he says, as per Rabbi Shafran, he says this would extend to medical professionals, military professionals, society needs them as well. And therefore, the, there are some noted voices in uh, modern Torah ethics and modern halacha that have, gone, that have said that the notion of essential workers is a, uh, is a legitimate precedence. Again, exactly how to integrate their claims with uh, the question of saving people who are more vulnerable. We certainly would like to give precedence to people who are older, over 65, over 75. And we certainly would, in in our case of coronavirus, which is particularly uh, lethal for for older people. And we certainly would like to give precedence to people who have pre-existing conditions, which would make their prognosis much grimmer if they contract coronavirus, if they contract COVID-19. The question then would be, how do we weigh that uh, against the claims of essential workers? We would like to vaccinate our healthcare workers. 
We would also like to vaccinate people who, due to their medical profiles, put them at greater risk. How do we, uh, how do we weigh those two? Rabbi Hoffman assumes that the, the only and certainly the primary consideration should be, the, should be the question of people's medical profiles. But the other post are not, the other post are less clear. Other post can list all these criteria together. And as we noted at the beginning, at the very beginning, the Mishnah and Harayos, the, the Talmudic discussion, only mentions people's uh, non-medical demographic profile, doesn't even mention the, the, the medical profile. So, so I would think certainly there is some room to say that a systematic, comprehensive policy by the authorities, by the government, could take into account essential workers, in addition, of course, to also prioritizing those who, due to their medical profiles, are more vulnerable and at higher risk. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. I can take, uh, I can take questions if people have them. As always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I see we have a bunch of questions in the, in, the, in the chat. I'll try to read some of them. Try to read some of them. Uh, some of them I see we've gotten to. Some, some, of, them we've, some of them we've gotten to already. Um, one of the questions is who gets to decide what is chai olam and what is chai isha? These are halachic categories, people who are expected to live for arbitrarily long times, and people who aren't expected to, who makes that call, who makes that decision. At the end of the day, that, that is fundamentally a medical decision. Rabbis are not doctors. Rabbis cannot evaluate the... Rabbis cannot eval- are not trained to read x-rays and look at blood work and... Uh, evaluate a person's prognosis. Now, the rabbis, do, we do have a certain distrust of certain overweening, uh, overconfident claims of the medical establishment. That's why, for example, Rav Weiss says the reason we are, the reason we don't look at prognoses of more than he says a few months out is because he says, he says, the, he says the, the track record of doctors has shown that very short-term prognoses are highly accurate, he says, Longer-term prognoses tend to, the accuracy drops off very rapidly. Once we get more than a few months or a year out, he says, the accuracy drops off greatly and they're much less reliable. So halacha, halacha has opinions, halacha has rules about how much weight sometimes to give to certain, certain types of opinions, but the actual individual diagnosis of a patient will generally have to be made by the doctor. The doctor will have to report, this is our prognosis this is our level of confidence. This is this is what it's based on. The doctor will have to the, the doctors will have to explain to the rabbis what the, the doctors will have to explain to the rabbis what the what the prognosis is and what their level of confidence is and what it's based on. At that point, the rabbis would have to rabbis would have to decide rabbis would have to decide uh, what what the halacha says about says about uh, says about the about such things. Ron, Ron Scheinson mentions as he's, as, as, that, that his daughter has been a frontline hospital worker. She has, uh, she, she, has, she has received the vaccine, but she's been working for a long time without it and would continue working. That's, that's actually one of her Hoffman's arguments, that the noble souls who do, uh, who do the frontline work are committed and dedicated and, uh, and are working anyway, so we can take advantage of that and not need to vaccinate them. That's not the way he puts it, but uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, yesh v'yesh, as they say. I'm sure there are some who, who, who are indeed noble souls motivated purely by altruism and, uh, and, and nobility of soul and ethics, and I'm sure there are some who 
are either less motivated by those considerations or who are just more fearful for their personal safety and might not be willing to, uh, to work if, the, if, if, they, if they weren't uh, treated properly if they weren't treated by if, if they weren't treated properly by um, by doctors, there's a there, there's a similar discussion, incidentally, in the context of uh, mil- military ethics. There is a there there's a discussion of I'm just going to send out the, the the notes one more time since uh, since people haven't some people may not have gotten them. So if you've gotten them, it's the same thing as before. If you haven't gotten them, I'm sending them again. Um, people discuss, the Israeli poskim, the Datilumi poskim, discuss whether in wartime soldiers should risk their lives to go out under fire to rescue someone who is injured and bleeding out and will definitely die if we don't save him, but the soldiers will have to risk their own lives to retrieve their comrade. Certainly there are even more extreme examples of throwing themselves on grenades to protect their comrades, but even in the, 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 the somewhat less extreme, less dramatic case of soldiers venturing out under enemy fire to save a comrade, medics or just soldiers in general. So there are a number of arguments uh, for, a number of arguments for or against this uh, topic for a different time. We've discussed it in the past, but one of the arguments they make is that it's necessary for military morale. It's essential for soldiers to know that their, that their comrades have their back, that the state has their back, the army has their back, that, that, if, that if they get in trouble, the state will do whatever it can, the army will do whatever it can to save them, and that itself is essential, is, 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 is integral to military morale. Again, there are some soldiers who are just so, so high-minded and noble that they wouldn't care what the army does, that they know these are my brothers, this is my, these, this is my people, I'll do whatever has to be done to, for the good of the Jewish people, for the good of my brethren. But there are some who are less so, and the Post can recognize that for, for military morale in general, we have to do things, we have to have policies that will bolster and, uh, and, and promote a, a, high sta- a high level of morale. So one can make the same argument for healthcare workers. While there are certainly some who are, who are pure souls who will do it anyway, there are some maybe who uh, will be less inclined to do it. And, and therefore, well, one has to make a judgment as to whether the overall medical health establishment will be significantly strengthened by a policy to, to, to give them priority or not. And again, that, that, that's somewhat of a factual question, and the facts intertwine with Allah, and, and that, is a, that, is a, uh, that is a tough call, tough call, to, uh, tough call to make. People have raised a number of other questions about whether we treat pandemics differently, whether, whether, we, treat the, whether we treat essential workers who are um, necessary for treatment and researching the disease different. So, that, so, so these are all kind of uh, fact-based questions that does the calculus change in a pandemic as opposed to uh, an ordinary or a quieter outbreak, or even, even, even COVID-19. Yes, it's a pandemic. It's worldwide. It's unprecedented. On the other hand, it's not the same as smallpox. It's not the same as the Spanish flu of, uh, of, of 1918. It's not the same as, as, the, as the medieval plague. So society basically is functioning, albeit at a certain level of inconvenience. And, uh, and, and, and I'm not minimizing the deaths and the, and, the, and, the, and the ongoing illnesses. But So it would make sense. You'd have to evaluate each epidemic, each pandemic differently and decide, is there a serious danger of societal collapse, of medical establishment collapse, and so on. And again, that would be largely a uh, that would be largely a judgment call. You certainly would have to have input from from doctors and and, and professionals, epidemiologists, and experts. But you'd also have to have rabbinic uh, opinion to evaluate the claims. That the the general question of the interface between between rabbinic opinion and subject matter experts is a fascinating one and very difficult one. 
people often quote Rav Salavechik that when he was asked when he was when he was asked for his opinion on Israeli political questions, land for peace, and so on, he would his position would always be, it's a factual question. The, the, is, is this deal, is this trade of land, is this going to save lives or not? Is this security step, is this going to be save Jewish lives or, or not save Jewish lives? It's a question to ask the experts. Generals know the answer. The security experts know the answer. Not me. Why are you asking me? There's certainly some truth to that. There certainly is some truth that a rabbi is not the one, is not the one equipped to, to make these judgments. On the other hand, the, on the other hand, the judgments can't, the, to some extent, especially on such uh, unknowable and future questions, it was anyone, people sometimes say it was Yogi Berra, I think it was more likely it was Niels Bohr, who famously said, uh, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. So, so the future is, is it, these questions are inherently unknowable, they're, you have to guess, and there are value judgments being made. By Shalom Karmi recently had a great essay pointing out that science will only get you so far at the end of the day, after science tells you, it's, uh, it tells you what the facts are, you still have to make value judgments. Is this level of risk worth uh, assuming for this level of societal benefit? At some point, there are value judgments to be made. And in the Torah, we believe that has to be made by, by people working within the values of the Torah, rabbis or, or, or halachic ethicists or people who are suffused with, uh, with knowledge of the Torah. So you have to have some kind of dance, obviously, some kind of... Some kind of uh, Synthesis between medical opinion and rabbinic opinion, exactly how to do it, uh, is, is above my pay grade. So n- no one is asking me for my opinion exactly, and uh, that's a good thing. Good thing for me and good thing uh, perhaps for the world. But, the, but at the end of the day, it, the questions can obviously not be decided solely by doctors, nor solely by rabbis. You need the facts, and then you need the, and then you need the value judgments, and together you arrive at, together you arrive at, the, at, at actual policy. Um, so, so it's okay. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, further questions? Any? Uh, I, I try to read a lot of the comments. It's hard to follow all of them, but you can feel free to unmute asking, yourself. I was asking about the uh, applicability of the decisions at the beginning of the Holocaust on allocating visas and in the camps on who, you know, who got into what line and things of that sort, which also seem to be involves this kind of priority? Yes. So the allocation of visas would be a very similar question. To the best of my knowledge, most of the, the factors we've been discussing would translate over pretty straightforwardly to the allocation of non-medical life-saving resources like visas and so on. Questions about value to society, questions about merit, questions... Uh, most of those, many of those considerations, I would imagine... Would would translate over pretty 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 straightforwardly to other types of life saving resources. Obviously, the questions about medical conditions, medical diagnoses and prognoses. You know, you have a whole different set of questions now. If you're talking about the Holocaust, who are the Nazis more likely to kill? Who's uh, healthy enough to survive the camps? And maybe you'd have to make those kind of decisions. But yes, I would imagine that there are similar considerations. Largely, a largely similar approach would be would apply in those cases. I imagine if one studies the literature, I haven't had the chance to go through that literature, I imagine one would find similar discussions, but uh, although, although I don't have actual sources for that, uh, actual sources for that offhand. Um, I should mention one other point, that the, this is relevant both in the case of the camps as well as in the case of the medical treatment, is that many posts can make the point our whole discussion today is from the perspective of third parties, doctors, healthcare workers, governments, hospitals. 
they have, they control, they have scarce medical resources, and they're trying to decide who to give it to. A person himself who has a medical resource that he needs, I have a vaccine, I already have the medicine, and someone else comes and says, I need it more than you, I'm the Kohen Gadol, you're, you're, the, you're, you're an ordinary civilian, or my life is in much greater danger. Let's say, for example, I, I already have the vaccine. So, so I'm, Usually it's not given to you to keep, but uh, it's administered to your, in, into your arm by, by the nurse. But let's say, for example, a patient has already been issued a prescription, has already been given life-saving medicine. He, he has the medicine at home in his, in his medicine cabinet. Someone knocks on his door and says, you know, I know you're sick, I know you need the medicine, but my condition is much graver than yours. Your, your, your condition is, uh, is uh, your, your, your prognosis without the medicine is still good, my prognosis is much worse, please give me the medicine. So Ramosha Feinstein says, he was talking about the context of a ventilator where, the, where, where there was one patient who was given it already, and another patient then comes who needs it more. Ramosha says a patient is under no obligation to relinquish medical resources that he needs in favor of anyone else, even if the other person is clearly a more appropriate recipient based on the various criteria we've been discussing. So all the criteria we've been discussing, many of them at least, are only relevant to third parties. They do not require a person to give up something of, of his own. And that actually is widely accepted. In the, in the specific case of the ventilator, there actually is a machlokus about this, Rav Asher Weiss challenges Ramosha and says that you don't, if the hospital gives you a bed, Ramosha wasn't talking about a ventilator, he was talking about a bed in an ICU or something. I'm sorry, other posts can talk about ventilators. Ramosha was talking about a scarce bed in an ICU. Rav Asher says, in, in, in principle, I mean, you're right, perhaps, that if you, if you own, if a patient has acquired and owns a resource, he can say, I'm not giving it up for anybody else. You don't own a bed in the hospital. The hospital owns the beds in the hospital. The hospital puts you where they want, where it wants, the hospital moves you as it deems appropriate. Nothing was granted irrevocably to you, Rav Asher says, when the hospital assigns you to a spot in a particular division. Hospital policy, accepted hospital policy is, hospitals move you around as they see fit. Therefore, Rav Asher says, if you've been assigned a specific resource by a hospital, it's not yours, and therefore the hospital can reassign it. But if something actually is yours, perhaps even Rav Weiss would agree, you don't have to give it up. And, and, and the similar things would apply to cases like visas and so on. If a third party is issuing a visa and has an extra visa and is deciding who to give it to, he would have to start making calculations along the lines of we've been discussing, who lives, who dies, and so on. But if you yourself have a visa, it should be noted, postman generally would not tell you to give it up in favor of somebody else, even if you're older and he's younger and all those criteria hold, that your life comes first, that, that, that the, the end of the day, you should retain the resource for yourself, even if someone else is objectively in greater need. I'd like to ask you a question. Thank you. Um, and once again, Yeshakar, for a very enlightening um, presentation. I mean, one of the reasons that halachic um, ideas have flourished over the last few hundred years is not so much for greater insight into the halachic Mishnah, Gemara, whatever, but because medicine has actually increased. And so we now we have concepts of disease prevention, risk assessment, disease progression, and so forth. So I want to talk about uh, prevention, and um, does anybody ever give up a kind of a status? So, for instance, if you have a community which is 10% of the population, but 40% of the COVID cases, do you treat that community any differently? Or because of their lack of concern in terms of spreadability of the virus, they, to a certain extent, have acted like road fam, and therefore they've lost the opportunity to be online. 
So, so this, is an, this is an interesting question. Uh, Arnie is uh, raising the point that this is kind of the, the, in, the, 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 the negative side of what we've been discussing. I, I mentioned several times that personal worth has a... Uh, personal worth is significant. The, the, we, we've noted that the Tamil Chacham has precedence over a layman, either because of his personal value as a Tamil Chacham or because of his value to society. But Post can make the same point with regard to people's personal, uh, personal merit as well. The, Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, Rabbi Yaakov Ariel, a contemporary authority in Israel, have said that if you have two people, two men, two women, one of them is a tzaddik and one of them is an ordinary person. One of them is learned and pious and one of them is an ordinary person. They've said, yes, we, 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 will, we, will, we, will, we will give precedence to the one who, is, uh, who, ha- who has more personal merit. So, the, so the, the sources I've seen have generally focused on the positive, that if one person is ordinary and the other person is extraordinary, is special, is, uh, is, is, spiritually, uh, is spiritually on a high level, then the person who is who's, uh, positively extraordinary will go first. The question is, what about the reverse? What if some people are normal and some people are negative? Some people are, some people have, are, are behaving badly. So first of all, we don't have to limit that to recklessness with regard to, uh, to COVID-19. We can discuss what if some people are, are in general, are not God-fearing. What if they cheat? What if they cheat and steal? What if they blaspheme? What if they're Mechal Shabbos? So we can discuss in general what if people fall short of the Torah's expectations of them in a variety of areas. Do we, uh, do we say that we, that, that we save, the, save the ones who are more meritorious or not? This question, a, a, a variation of this question, actually came up in the 19th century during the, the, the era of the Cantonists, where the terrible time where the Russian government, other governments, would go to the Jewish community and say, we have a quota, we need 10 Jewish kids from this village to draft to the army. Worst case scenario, it was 25 years in the army, take them away at 10 years old, sit in the Russian army uh, for 25 years, and then we'll let you go. That would be terrible from a material perspective, Gashmius, from a Ruchniistic perspective, a spiritual perspective. And the worst, of, the worst thing, or the worst of all this was, the government would often make us make the decision. It would tell that community, you provide us 10 people. You pick. This was a terrible, terrible period. There were terrible accusations of corruption and of self-dealing by the leaders of communities. That was one of the things that led, apparently, to a lot of alienation of the, the rank and file from the establishment, from... Terrible, terrible time. But one of the questions that Postkin actually discussed was if there are people who, some people are you know, decent and you know, you know, decent kids, Shomrei Torah mitzvahs, uh, upright kids, and some of them are, some of them are never do wells, are scoundrels, are, are don't keep Torah properly, are they, they're, they're, they're social, they're, 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 so, they're antisocial, they steal, they do other things. Should we, should we privilege the should we privilege the, the good ones, the good kids, so to speak, over the, the not-such-good kids? So many postkin were vehemently opposed. So some postkin said, absolutely not. Unless someone is completely in Apikaris and has shmatted and left the Jewish community entirely, Yisrael, Afbishachat Yisrael, who he's Jewish, his life is still dear to God, and we have no right to sacrifice him to save the community. Again, there the issue was we actually are turning him over to the we actually are turning him over to the non-Jews. We're actually going to be picking him up and handing him over to the enemy for physical and spiritual destruction. So that's worse. In a case where we could only save one, where on the contrary we can we can do an action to save one, and we have to decide should we try to save the one who is uh, should we try to save the one who is 
in better religious standing or not. So that would be a more complicated question, and that's really similar to what Arnie's asking about. Should we, uh, should we have less interest in helping those who are, less, who are less deserving from an ethical perspective? Arnie's asking also specifically in the case of COVID-19 bad behavior itself, should we argue some kind of media connected media that, that, that if you're not going to take the disease seriously, we're not going to, uh, we're not going, going to provide you with the vaccine either? So that's an interesting question. I haven't seen any discussion about that, and I would have to uh, think that through a little more carefully. An interesting question. Right, I mean, the, the notion would be is to ask those, some rabbis who are sort of breaking the line to get the COVID shot, have you had a flu shot this year? Right. So I, I haven't had a flu shot. I, 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 one of the blogs, I should just mention, on one of the blogs. As opposed to, you know, concern of, of their own individual health. So I, I, I should mention, on one of the blogs I saw recently, so one of, one of the... One of the one of the Israeli politicians apparently, one of the left wingers, apparently had a tweet which he which he subsequently deleted, in which he said basically that Haredim who are behaving irresponsibly with respect with respect to coronavirus should be should be uh, should be denied the vaccine or something. Um, he said that if there are Hasidic groups that refuse to adhere to the laws of the state, maybe the state should stop providing them certain services such as health care during Corona times. So the response, of course, was, on the left, you're the one who argues that every terrorist and every criminal has to be provided full medical care. And that the fact that he blew up, uh, blew up a cafe full of families doesn't matter. Now that he's a patient, he needs uh, medical treatment. You think when it comes to terrorists and other types of uh, antisocial people, you insist on giving them their full human rights. And when it comes to Haredim, who, who you feel are behaving badly, you, you suddenly decide that we should, uh, we should behave in this Darwinian fashion toward them. So, again, maybe there's more of an issue of media connected media. If this is the area in which they behave badly, maybe someone would argue they should be treated differently. Um, right, and Arnie's pointing out, if, if you yourself don't care about... about right, and the question here is priority. It's not a question of denying entirely. It's a question of... Uh, it's a question of... Uh, right, here it's a question of priorities and so on. So, yeah, so that, that's an interesting question. Is, is there room to say that if you're behaving irresponsibly, if you yourself aren't taking the aren't taking the precautions that you should, then, then you don't deserve to have priority. It's intuitively, perhaps, an appealing argument. I, I haven't seen anyone make it in, in a halakhic context. I, I, would have to, I would have to look into that further. Thank you. Thanks. Chodesh Tov. Ron, Ron is pointing out that follow the science is tricky, that science evolves, that individual, individual scientists, individual people, even if they're experts in their field, aren't experts outside their field. So deciding what is science, it's not as black and white and clear-cut as we're taught in, uh, in elementary school, but that you know, there, there are experts, there are epidemiologists, there's a community, there's, there, there's peer review, there's... Uh, Science is not static. So, yeah, so all that obviously has to be taken into account. That, that obviously science is not set in stone, and then you can't just say, here is the holy scripture, the holy writ of science, and I follow it. So obviously, follow the science is a shorthand for a much more, a much more uh, intricate and continuous process. It means being in touch and staying in touch with the, with the, the, evolving, with the evolving views of the medical community and taking that into account. When Rav, when, when Rav Asher Weiss has written extensively on, 
on COVID-19, halachically, ashkafically. So they've put out already several volumes, several editions, several volumes of his rulings. So in the introduction to, to, to one of the volumes, there's a big disclaimer in the front. It says, we are publishing here numerous rulings that were issued at the, at the height at various points in the pandemic. All these rulings were issued in response to specific uh, bodies of knowledge, specific circumstances, that, 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 that as, as, the re, as the realia evolves, as expert opinion evolves, then the halachic rulings would evolve as well, that you certainly that you have to be careful before accepting any ruling here as being uh, timeless. And for the ages, you have to be aware that these were all written in a rapidly evolving context, and you should take that into account. And of course, that goes without saying. that Anytime you're dealing with an evolving situation, then certainly the, the halacha evolves as well. Not that the halacha in principle evolves, but that the halacha is simply applying Torah principles to specific, uh, specific sets of facts. And as the facts change, Obviously, the halakha changes as well.